good morning. Welcome to Ridgetop Church. Uh, my name's Robert, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and really glad to see you all. Um, we have been going through a sermon series we've, we've called The Secret Life of Jesus, and it's based on Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew uh, 6 and 7. And um, we have been saying that Jesus has a secret life with the Father, and he's inviting us in to that life, that we could be children of, of the Father as well. Um, and we've been saying that part of how that is facilitated is things like spiritual practices. And Jesus talks about praying and giving and fasting. And uh, he's not just saying, here's some things that you need to do, but he's saying these are things that give you uh, an opportunity to encounter God as your Father. And when we do that, uh, our lives are changed. Our lives are changed. Uh, you say, well, how are our lives changed? Well, that's a big question, right? They're changed in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, but one that Jesus mentions here is a change in the way that we interact with the material world. And I think partly he mentions this because it is such a miracle when human beings and their relationship with, with money, with wealth, with stuff is changed and transformed. That literally takes a miracle. It was actually one of the signs of gospel witness for the early church, their relationship with their wealth, their stuff. Uh, we read about it in Acts 2, verse 44. It says, all who believed, so it's talking about those first Christians in Jerusalem uh, who responded to Peter's sermon. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's an amazing witness. Right? That church had an amazing witness in Jerusalem. And there was a lot of reasons for that. But one was the way they were relating with material things. And they were holding those things in a very open hand. And they were selling some of it and using the proceeds to take care of needs. And they were opening their homes in hospitality. And they were enjoying material things. So they weren't just giving it away and being generous with it. They were enjoying it. And so this relationship that they had because of what God had done in their lives, uh, the relationship they had with, with, with stuff was a witness to the people around them. Honestly, this may be how the Church of Jesus Christ reaches Austin, Texas. I mean, Austin, Texas has a really messed up relationship with stuff and money. And ju if just that, if, if God transforms our relationship with stuff to be a, a profound witness to Austin, Texas. Um, question is, well, how does that happen, right? How, how can my relationship with stuff get transformed from being kind of a greedy, anxious hoarder to a generous and glad steward of my things? Right? That'd be pretty awesome, right? That'd be pretty awesome. Uh, how does that happen? Um, 
Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, we've already heard some of the pieces of how this happens. So um, one of the ways it happens is through spiritual practices, right? We're giving, we're praying, we're fasting, and that's not, not an exhaustive list of spiritual practices, but, but partly of how, how God is transforming our hearts in every area, including our relationship with material wealth, is through these spiritual practices. The other thing that we've been hearing, and this we heard in, in the sermon last week when, when Cooper was preaching, is that this change that's occurring is at the heart level. It's not mere behavioral management. It's at the core of who we are, which is where Jesus was in the text last week. And what we heard last week was that this idea of the heart in the Bible is not the, the organ that pumps blood, but it's the very center of who you are. It's your spiritual center. And from this center is where your mind, your will, your emotions are uh, originating from. So it's the very heart, very core of who you are. And that, if that's changed, the very core of who you are, then the rest of it's going to get changed, right? The outward stuff's going to get changed. The relationship with material wealth's going to get changed. The words that come out of our mouth's going to get changed. All that's going to get changed if we experience a transformation at the heart. Um, Jesus is getting, that, getting to that in Matthew 6, 21. This is from last week. And you, you want to follow me in, in the scriptures here because some, some of the scriptures will be here, but the main text will be uh, in your Bibles, right? Because uh, I want you to read along with me. So he says in Matthew six twenty one, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So there Jesus is teaching this inward-outward relationship of what's going on in the very core of your being is being manifested out in the, in the air in the way that you're dealing with your treasure, your material wealth. And so if that, again, that relationship with material wealth is going to change, it's going to require what Dallas Willard calls a renovation of the heart. A renovation of the heart. has a whole book that's called that. Um, you should read it, but I'm not going to quote from it. Um, this renovation of the heart idea is what Jesus is getting at in this text from this morning. And so what Jesus teaches to, in today's text is how to diagnose your heart by looking at the outward behaviors and, and, and working your way back to the inward reality in your heart. And then he teaches us how to renovate that heart by replacing false beliefs with true beliefs. Okay? Those are two big ideas in the sermon. Is He's going to teach us how to diagnose our hearts by looking at things on the outside and tracing those back to our inside, in, in our core. And then he's going to teach us how to replace that, uh, the false beliefs with true beliefs at the level of the heart. So let's talk about the diagnoses of the heart first. So Matthew six twenty five, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. So here he is talking about outward uh, actions. And again, he, he, he was doing that in 621 where he's saying your tr where your treasure is, there your heart is. Uh, and he does this in other places in Matthew as well. So for instance, Matthew 15, verse 18, he says, but what comes out of the mouth 
proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false, uh, false witness, and slander. So you see him doing that, where he's like, this is what comes out of the heart. And he's talking about outward actions, words, even thoughts. Right? Now here in, in Matthew 6.25, he's also talking about emotions. And this might be the most insightful way to diagnose your heart is to consider your emotions. Emotions that are coming out of your heart. So when he says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. He's trying to get us to diagnose our hearts. Because if, if we have anxiety, if we have fear, it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from the very core of our being. And this is, this is not Jesus saying, shame on you for feeling anxious. Like if you were a real Christian, you would never be anxious. And we know Jesus was anxious in the Garden of Gethsemane, Right? Like, he, he, he was distressed, he was fearful, he was worried. Like, like, there is a sort of good worry, right? But he's, he's, he's talking about some, something else here, and we'll get at it as we go through uh, this passage. Um, the anxiety that he's talking about here is the anxiousness we feel about our material needs. Has anybody ever felt anxious about your material needs? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, everybody has, right? I mean, at some point, you, you feel anxious. You feel panicky. And so this is, there's great hope in this statement that Jesus makes, and he makes it three times in this passage, when he says, don't be anxious. He's saying that as we mature as Christ followers, we could actually be freed from anxiety. Now, not, not perfectly, but we could be, there could be a freedom from this. This is great news that Christ is offering us here in this passage. Um, he's, he's letting us know that that anxiety that we have, it shouldn't be like, well, shame on me, I'm a bad Christian, uh, I'm anxious, but instead using it as a way to diagnose the heart, to go from the emotions and, and, and trace it back to the heart. Um, there's a, a, a Bible study a book that we've used in different places over the years called Be Transformed. And at the beginning of that study, they use this house as an uh, illustration. And it's a way to think about uh, a human being and how, uh, how, we, how we work. And uh, so we've got outward words and actions. Uh, those words and actions are influenced greatly by our feelings, our, our, how, we're, how we're feeling about something. Those feelings are attached to thoughts for the most part. I mean, I know they can be kind of low-level feelings. You don't know what they're attached to. But in general, we're thinking something. It's making us feel something, and then it's causing us to do or not do uh, something in, in terms of an outward action. And what Be Transformed says, and I think it's scriptural, and we'll get at this as we're going through this passage, is that what's underneath all of that at the heart level, in a place that's often like in a basement, like we're not even conscious of it, is our beliefs what we really believe about God, about self, about others. And those beliefs, good, bad, and ugly, are like a basement that's either full of smelly trash or not so smelly stuff, right? Because whatever it is, is going to permeate up into thoughts, feelings, words, actions. Right? And so when Jesus says, hey, don't be anxious, 
It's, it's a, little, uh, a, little, a little prompt to say, well, I am anxious. Right? Why am I anxious? Why am I anxious in particular in this passage about my material well-being? And the answer is, is because the beliefs down in the basement need to get recognized and replaced. And Jesus is going to help us do that in, in this passage. Now, this is similar to if you've ever been uh, in therapy or maybe you studied psychology, something called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's, it's very similar. It's interesting how sometimes the wisdom of the world will, will cross over with, uh, with Scripture. And uh, a guy by the name of Jonathan Haidt, who uh, is an NYU, he, he calls himself a, a social psychologist, uh, but uh, is, is kind of an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy. And he describes what he does as a cognitive behavioral therapist with this elephant and a rider, okay? So he, he says, you think of the, 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 the rider as the rational brain. So that's kind of your thoughts, right? The elephant as your emotional brain, and that's your feelings, right? And then the path, that's the environment that you're on as you go through life, and your environment is affecting your thoughts and your emotions. Notice that the elephant is the emotions. So he says it doesn't mean that the rider is not affecting where that elephant is going, but how that, ri- how, how that human is feeling emotionally has the greatest, he says, the greatest impact on the direction that you're going in. Right? I think that does describe human beings, especially in our context, pretty well pretty well emotions is 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 the main thing that most people get up in the morning and this is what drives them and and this is this includes christians and height says what we do is we feel our way into something and then we do whatever we have to in our thoughts to justify what we just did it's pretty profound right now what he doesn't understand is the heart jonathan height is an evolutionary naturalist, and uh, he doesn't acknowledge that there is a, an unseen part of a human being. And so he doesn't understand the core of the human being being the heart from which thoughts, emotions, actions actually occur. But of course, Jesus does. Jesus is a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty amazing uh, social psychologist here, if you want to use that term. So how is Jesus saying that we ought to renovate our hearts, which will lead to a transformation of feelings, thoughts, actions, uh, outward, outward behaviors. And this is, this is really what he's doing here uh, in this passage, is he's getting at the beliefs that we have at the heart level in order to deal with the anxiety, to deal with the improper relationship that we have with the material world. This is also, I think, helpful to understand what happens when you become a Christian. Because when you become a Christian, you believe at the level of your heart, at the core of who you are, right? This is the way the Apostle Paul describes Christian conversion, Romans 10, 9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see what he's doing there? Doing that inward outward thing whereby we're, 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 we're doing something outwardly. We're professing Christ. We're confessing Christ. Maybe we're getting baptized. But he's saying if it's a, a genuine conversion 
Something has happened not just in the level of the thoughts and feelings and even the will, it's happened at the level of the heart. You've believed, you've trusted in, you've relied upon what Christ has done for you at the cross. And how do you know, how, how does this come about? A few verses later in Romans 10, verse 17 says, So faith, so, so believing, comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So those of you that are Christians, you were hearing the information about Jesus and what he did for you. You were maybe seeing it on a page as you read it. And it was going into your brain, right? And it was, it was affecting your thoughts. And you're even having an emotion about that thought. But if, if you became a genuine Christian, it made its way down into the very core of your being. This is, this is a miracle, what I'm describing. And you believed. You trusted in. You relied upon the grace that Christ gave you at the cross when he died. And if you're hearing that for the first time, hey, receive it today. Receive what Christ did for you at the cross. Believe it at the level of your heart. And you say, well, I'm not quite there yet. I'm still thinking about it. And good, like that, that has to happen before you can really believe in a genuine way. So maybe you need to have some more conversations to get some more thoughts that you can consider and even have some feelings about and eventually believe at the level of the heart. And as you, when you became a Christian, uh, that is, was a belief that shifted a core belief in your basement, so to speak. And that conversion, that new life in Christ, started to permeate out of the basement into the rest of your life. Your thoughts, your feelings, actions, words. And this keeps going, right? I, once you get that core belief in the gospel, then, then you continue to recognize and replace beliefs as you're renewing your mind, you're reading the scriptures, you're hearing sermons preached, you're talking to Christian friends, you're singing Christian songs, and over time, more and more beliefs are getting driven down into the basement of who you are, and that is permeating back up into your thoughts, feelings, actions, words. That's awesome. Right? I mean, this is a miracle. This is the miracle that God does in our hearts and it moves out into our outward life. Now, even in verse 25, Jesus is starting to confront us with beliefs that we need to replace. And that little question he asks at the end of 25, verse 25, Matthew 6, he says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? That's a great question, right? Isn't life more than, than food? <laughs> Isn't the body more than, than just whether or not you can get fit and have the right stylish clothing and to have the, the right Apple Watch or, you know, whatever it is, you know, the flamingo shirt, you know, Josh? I mean, it's, there's more to life than a flamingo shirt, right? It's an awesome shirt, by the way. Um, it's a great question, and obviously, Jesus wants us to answer the question with a yes. Life is more than food. My body is more than mere clothing. Jesus is teaching us to embrace what uh, philosopher Charles Taylor calls a transcendent frame. As opposed to an imminent frame. An imminent frame would say, no, actually, life is not more 
than food. My body is not more than clothing or whatever I can do in, in my body. Right? And Jesus is saying, no, it is more. There is an unseen. And it is in the unseen, in this transcendent frame, that actually gives meaning to the seen. If all there is is seen, the world that we, that we can taste and smell and touch and put under a microscope, a la University of Texas at Austin, then there's no meaning. But if there's unseen, if we live in a transcendent frame, there is meaning. Even in the food, even in the clothing, even in the body. And so Jesus is, is giving us this, this, at least one belief out of that, out of that question. And, that, and that, that belief is that there's more to this life than what can be seen. Now, you, you probably believed that coming in. I mean, you, you know, you came to, to church this morning. And honestly, a lot of Austinites and a lot of people on these campuses, they believe that. They believe there's something beyond the scene. I'm not maybe sure what it is, but they believe in the transcendent frame. I, th- I actually think it's a good. That is good. Um, and Jesus is going to say more about this frame. But, but at the very, at least the, at the very most minimal level, believing that there's something or someone in the unseen. Believe in a transcendent frame. Now, Jesus, uh, he teaches this in a much more poetic way. So that, that was a lot of philosophy. And, you know, if you're like bored to tears and falling asleep back there, let Jesus wake you up here because he is much more poetic about it. So verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? So what Jesus does, he asks it, isn't life more than food and a body more than clothing? And then he starts to answer the question. And the way that he answers the question is by talking about birds. Talking about birds, right? And he's probably teaching outside and his birds flying around. And he's like, look at the birds, right? Um, the birds don't seem stressed. They don't seem to be laying up treasure for themselves. They're not laying up seed for themselves, um, now, for Texas birds, I don't think that's really that big a deal. Guys, I'm just going to be honest. It's just green here all the time. There's plenty of food for these birds. They, they're good. They don't need to be stressed. But New England birds, they should be stressed. And I would even think about this. When we lived in New England, and there was like a foot and a half of snow on the ground, and we had this, this little, little, little roof that was like right outside of our kitchen window, and the birds would come and light on that roof in the middle of winter. I mean, the dead of winter. You know, it's February. And that snow's not going anywhere for another month, maybe a maybe month and a half. And I would just think, you stupid bird. Like, how are you going to make it? You know, I'm, there's no food here, right? And I wasn't feeding them because I was just too lazy to do it. And, 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 but they didn't look stressed, even these New England birds. And, and what, God, what, what Jesus is pointing to is the providence of God. He's saying, look at creation. Look how well designed it is by God. Right? Like, like the creator has, has formed it in such a way that these birds are being cared for. And then Jesus does this thing that he likes to do where he says, if that's true, then how much more will this be true? Right? And he's like, if that's true, God takes care of birds, how much more will he take care of you? And then he asks another question. Are you of more value than the birds? The answer, yes. <laughs> yes. 
You're an image bearer of God. I mean, birds are cool, but they're not image bearers. They're not these special creations by God. Like, like they are, we're special because we've been created in his image. And, and he's saying that the providence of God is proof of the goodness of the one who's in the unseen, right? So he's like, isn't life more than this? He gets us in a transcendent frame. Now he's telling us who's in the unseen. And it's a good father who's all-powerful, who's an all-powerful creator. And he's doing good for us. Now you say, well, that's great for birds. That's not how it works with humans. It is a little different, okay? I, I get that. Um, but at the very least, he's saying, and we'll talk more about how, how it is different here in a minute. He's saying belief too, that there's a God in the unseen. He's in absolute control and he's good. I know that's like three, three, three beliefs, but those need to be together, right? There's a God in the unseen. Just, just that, we make, well, I don't, is he good? Is he, is he bad? Is he evil? Is he what? And he's saying, no, there's a God in the unseen. He's in absolute control. And how that's summed up is the word providence, right? That means God is in absolute control, but he's using the control for good. So we could say absolute control, and that's it. We, we would probably use the word sovereignty, which is true. But when we say he's in absolute control and he's good, it's providence. Great old Puritan word, right? And it comes from the same kind of stream of words as provision, right? Providence, provision that God is providentially caring for those birds. He's providentially caring for us. There's a good God in the unseen, and he's in absolute control. And it continues to, to, to give us more and more beliefs to drive down into the basement. Verse 27, he says, Which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Answer, no one. No one. No one can add to their, to their life by being anxious, actually, anxiety will take hours off of your life. I mean, honestly, anxiety is the number one killer in, mo- in the modern, you know, like a developed place where diseases, in a lot of ways, have been taken care of through science and vaccines, and, and we're all still dying. Why? Because we're stressed. And it's contributing to cancer and heart disease and stroke. And it's really the number one killer. So, how many of you, by being stressed, could add to your life? No, no, none of you. And actually take some years off, right? And what, what Jesus is driving out at here, I think, is to say to us, while God is good and in ultimate control, we do not have ultimate control over anything in the seen or the unseen. We do not have ultimate control over anything anything in the seen or the unseen. Uh, I say ultimate control because we do have what we might call proximate control, meaning we are near to and involved in, for instance, producing wealth, right? You shouldn't go lay on the couch and go, well, God, you take care of the birds, so take care of me. No, you as a human being, different than birds, you are an image bearer of God. Part of that is working. And so you want to be, have proximate control of your wealth production and wealth stewardship by being near to and involved in, that's what proximate means, um, 
the production of wealth. And this is something God wants for you, and it's something that's good, and it's something that he's, he's calling each one of us to. Um, but again, we don't have ultimate control. Some of you who have lost jobs <laughs> or had a slam-dunk acceptance into a university that didn't work out, or you, you know what, you're ta- what I'm talking about. Like, am I going to get into a university if I don't apply? No, probably not. But is it a sure thing, even if your test scores are amazing? No, it's not. You do not have ultimate control over anything in the seen or unseen, but you have proximate control. And you have proximate control in the seen and the unseen. Right? You're, you're saying a prayer about something? You have proximate control. Not ultimate, but proximate control of God doing something. Right? How does that work? I don't know. That's a whole other sermon, but we won't go there. Um, it's interesting that Jesus' illustration of both this seen idea and unseen idea is, is death, right? He's saying, how many of you can add to your life by, by worrying? And it, another way to think about it is he's saying, you're going to die, and you can't control that. And it really is such a profound illustration of the seen and the unseen, right? Like, what happens in death, right? There's, there's this scene thing that's happening, this, this body that was once animated and walking around and talking is now just lying there. Something's happened in the scene, but it's also happened in the unseen. Right? The soul has been uh, disintegrated from the body. And we don't have control over that. We don't have ultimate control of the, of the, of the, uh, the scene or uh, the unseen. And these beliefs that there's a transcendent frame, that in that unseen uh, place there's a good God who's in ultimate control that I am not in ultimate control these are calming beliefs in regard to our relationship with material wealth as you drive those down into the basement of your heart they should calm you and so like a good preacher Jesus sets up the the, the problem don't be anxious "Ah, I'm anxious and he's like okay let me help you let me drive down some beliefs into the basement of your heart. And, and, and once those beliefs, and again, it's a process, not like a one and done, but as those beliefs get more and more secure down in the basement, they're going to permeate up into your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, your attitudes, your will. Right? And so these, wor- these, these beliefs should have a calming uh, effect. Um, it's interesting when, when we transitioned from our church in Massachusetts that we had planted in 1999 and I pastored there for 22 years um, and as we were driving away there was great sadness but there was also great relief because I'd been the lead pastor there from the beginning when there was no one there to it was a four, church of 400 right and there was just a lot of responsibility and it just felt like just holding the bag for 22 years and, and as we're driving away I'm thinking wouldn't it be great to go be on the staff of a church somewhere where somewhere else, someone else is the lead pastor? Someone else is the senior pastor. Someone else is having to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and be in prayer and can't sleep. and like, what are we going to do next? Right? This is going to be amazing. I'm going to be a part of a team. And I had you know, my resume out of different places, and I was thinking, man, this is going to be so much easier and nicer. And, of course, God had different ideas because here we are planting a church. Um, 
But what was real, though, is that even in those 22 years, I was not the one who had ultimate control or responsibility for the church. God did. And there were many mornings when I'm like, I'm so stressed out. But you're the head of the church, God. Here, you take it. And I knew that was true. But it was this ongoing battle in my heart trying to, 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 to sort out. What's I'm, what am I really believing down there in the basement? And all of us have that, that, that fight. We don't have to be uh, pastors of churches to, to be working through the beliefs of, of whether or not we're in ultimate control or proximate control. Some of us, we're not doing what we should be doing. We're not near to and involved in the solution. <laughs> we're like, oh, I'm just going to procrastinate. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to do anything. And that's a whole another set of sins and repentances and returning to right beliefs down in the basement. That's also another sermon for another, another day. Right? Now, Jesus goes on to illustrate these truths that we've just been talking about, these three truths, in another way, and then he's going to add another truth to it. Which is, this is cool. I mean, it, this really is Jesus preaching, right? Uh, kind of recapping, and then he's going to add to it. So verse 28, he says, Why are you anxious about clothing? He's, he keeps digging on that, right? He keeps asking this question. And then he says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God... So clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Right? So he's restating this idea that there's a transcendent frame. There's a God, a good God, who's in ultimate control in the unseen. Um, and and he's, he's saying, look at the flowers. Do they look stressed? They don't look stressed. And he says the lilies of the field, and this word that's translated lilies really is a wild flower. It's not like a flower that someone has really tended and planted and weeded and fertilized. It just like, whoop, popped up, and it's absolutely beautiful, right? He's like, Solomon, I mean, he had a nice wardrobe. Doesn't even compare to these beautiful wildflowers that just, you know, popped up, right? And, and so it's similar to the bird thing but a little bit different. And I think one of the differences here is that God's not just providing for just basic sustenance like the birds. Like they, they just need some whatever birds eat. And uh, the flowers are being provided with beauty. This is really, a, this is a glimpse into the heart of God. That his provision is not just, here's some bread and water, you know, like, I sustained you, what's your problem? He, he's giving beauty. Um, and, and so we need the daily intake of calories, sure, but we also need beauty. And God is a provider of, of beauty. Um, this, this picture uh, was took by my wife. We were on a walk through this little town where my parents live, and we were in a part of that town that, I'm telling you, was not real beautiful. It, it was kind of rough. It, it, it was not looking too good. And we get to this kind of open pasture, and the pasture's kind of all grown up, and it's not that, just, yeah, it just didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a good vibe. I wasn't vibing with this, with this street. And, uh, and then we walk up to that, and we're like, wow, look at the beauty of this. And, so, and she took an awesome picture of it. Um, God is, is good, 
he's good. Yeah, he's in ultimate control. And he's good. And one of the ways you know he's good is that he's, he's providing beauty. What, el- what else is there beauty for, right? It's for us to enjoy, given to us by a good God who has so much ultimate control that he can do some landscaping in a, a, really, a really sad little, little patch of ground. Also tucked away in here is a call to believe. Right? He says, oh, you of little faith. This phrase shows up in Matthew a lot and not the other. I think it shows up in one other gospel, but it shows up multiple times in Matthew. So I think this is, this is important. Um, when the dis- disciples are freaking out about the storm that's about to capsize the boat and kill them, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. <laughs> I mean, I think it's okay. It, be, you, it seems normal to freak out by a capsized boat that's going to kill you. And, and Jesus is like, oh, you have little faith, right? Uh, Peter, in another storm incident, he, he steps out on the water at Jesus' invitation, and he starts to get anxious and fearful, and he starts to, 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 to go down into the water, and Jesus helps him out, and Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. Uh, it happens again when the disciples are worried about lunch, and this is after they've seen the feeding of the 5,000 plus, and Jesus overhears them worried about lunch. And, he, and he, he looks at him, he's like, oh, you of little faith. Um, after the disciples have tried to drive out a demon out of a child that a father has brought to him, and um, uh, they can't do it. And he says to them, um, he says to them, oh, you of little faith. Um, Jesus isn't shaming them. He isn't shaming them. He's, he's calling them to trust, to rely on, to believe in God at their very core. When they're in that storm and he's saying, oh, you have little faith, he, he, he's letting them know, you could believe something so deeply at the very core of your being such that you wouldn't have to ever be afraid again, no matter what. And that, that's the kind of power that could come from those core heart experienced beliefs in the one true God. In each of these examples, when, when Jesus sees behaviors or words or even emotions that aren't consistent with a belief in God, he doesn't say, now you should try harder not to feel that or do that or say that. He goes to the level of belief. And he says, oh, you have little faith. It's an invitation to go down the basement and drive those beliefs about a good God who's in ultimate control down to, to the very depth of our being. Um, he, he goes on after call, kind of calling us to believe, right? So think about this. He says, don't be anxious. And then he gives us these beliefs. He's like, recognize these and replace them with these new beliefs. And then in verse 31, he says it again, therefore do not be anxious. So what, he, what he, he seems to be saying is, okay, we've done some work here. We've done some recognize and replace. Now I'm going to say it again. Don't be anxious. It's an invitation into a life that's free from fear. It's free from anxiety. Uh, he, he goes on and says, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So he's doing it again. He's summarizing, and then he's adding another piece 
to this. And the piece that he adds to it is this Gentile word. And, and he's, he's saying, for the Gentiles seek after these things. These Gentiles are living in this other frame. And yeah, they're feeling anxiety, but, but we're not over here in the kingdom frame, the transcendent frame. Um, what does he mean by that? And why does he use this word Gentile? Uh, well, Gentile was used by the Jews to categorize everyone who was not Jewish. So it was like, we got the Jews and we got the, everybody else, and that's the Gentile. It, was, it, it had a, a racial connotation, it had a religious connotation. Uh, and so here Matthew's writing to a church full of Jews and Gentiles, all, all kinds of people from the nations, right? And, but primarily Jewish. And so he uses new categories here, uses, but uses them old words. And so he's saying Gentile as those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ and become the children of the Father. And then everyone else that are in the kingdom. So one of the things he's saying is in order to get these kinds of beliefs driven down in your basement, you're going to have to have an identity relocation. You're going to have to be relocated from being in the, in the frame of the Gentile or the, or the one who has not yet placed their faith in Christ and become a child of the Father to one who has placed their faith in Christ and has become a child of the Father. And when that happens, you will have this new identity. And that's driven right down to the core of your being. That's not just a, okay, I got these 10 things that the Christians gave me and now I try really hard and do those things. No, we're, we're talking about a absolute transformation from the heart. We believe from the heart that Christ did what he, what, what, what he said he was going to do. He did it. He, he died on the cross for our sins. He uh, rose from the dead and he offers new life to anyone who would believe. And so we need that change of identity. And this is our greatest need. I mean, we need food. We do. God knows it. I mean, Jesus says it right here. He knows we need it. We, we, need, we need beauty. We need it. I, I, God provides it. But more than anything, we need salvation from our sin. We need to be rescued from our sin and the consequences of sin. And that can only happen through faith in Christ. And God has paid an infinite cost in order to meet that need. Yeah, he takes care of the birds. Absolutely. He, he makes sure that the grass is growing and the, 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 the creation's humming, absolutely. But he, the most glorious thing he's ever done is meet this need that we have to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God as our Father. Um, if you've, not, again, not yet done that, boy, today would be a great day to do that, to trust in, to rely upon, to believe at the core of your, your being, in your heart, that Christ died, that he rose from the dead, that he's made the payment so that your sins can be forgiven, that that, that, that core belief will be believed. And if that core belief is believed, then you can begin to be transformed in every area of your life, even your relationship with wealth, with stuff, with the material world. You don't have to be anxious about that anymore and um, what one of the things that that he he does after he's kind of given us this this new frame is, is he adds to it and and he he basically says okay now that we kind of got these basic beliefs down in your basement now i want to welcome you to this new uh, existence and it's called living in the kingdom of god right this is this is like a whole new realm Literally, that you get to live in 
as one who has believed in God's one and only Son and what he's done for you. And this is the way he says it in verse 33. Some of you know this verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So he, he, he adds a fourth belief, and this is uh, that God is worthy of your ultimate allegiance. Now, Jesus is being so clever here and kind by starting at a place that we, he's, he's right there where we are, right? We're anxious about our next paycheck, like how we're going to provide for our family. And he starts there, and he works his, he goes down into our hearts, and he deals with the beliefs of our hearts, and he comes back up, and he's like, okay, now, the whole time I was, I was inviting you into the kingdom of God. And he started with our anxiety <laughs> as a place to begin that conversation. Again, so clever, so kind of our king and savior, uh, Jesus. And so, as we, as we see the good God who is ultimate control and that his goodness is shown both through the providence but ultimately through the cross, we then see that he is worthy uh, to be submitted to, right? If he's in ultimate control, he's the ultimate king, uh, that we would seek first his kingdom and not be seeking first food and clothes or whatever else is, you know, we're, we're worried about in the material world. And he's, he's inviting us into this new way of living whereby we are seeking him and his kingdom and the other things are being added to us as well. It's similar to what Jesus was praying in the model prayer earlier, right? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You see the same move from he's your father, he's in ultimate control, he's the king. You can ask for daily bread. But don't get those mixed up. You know, <laughs> Daily bread, it's everything, I'm so worried. No, make, put those in their proper place of seek the kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. He is a good father. He is king and we can trust him for those other things to be given to us as well. And then he gives us last, uh, do not be anxious, right? He says it again. Again, good preacher. He's in repetition. Uh, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, I think he's describing a person where those beliefs have been put down into the basement of a good God who's in ultimate control, that we are not in ultimate uh, control, and that he is worthy of our allegiance. And those things have been driven down into the core of our being. And as, as we are, are, are centered like that, we look at tomorrow and we go, well, I don't have control over that. <laughs> I don't have to be anxious about that. So I'm going to be present now. I have proximate control, not ultimate, but proximate control of now. So I'm going to be concerned with now. And I'm not going to worry about this thing that I don't have control of. And I don't have to worry because I know the one who does have control of it. This is how a kingdom citizen thinks about the material world. And so you can interact with material stuff with glad and generous hearts. Just like we read in Acts 2. 
We can be grateful for what we have. It's funny how, not funny, it's kind of tragic when the worry of the future is tainting our enjoyment of the present. It's like, I'd like to have a glad heart here, but I'm too worried about the future. That's madness if you're Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's not madness. You, you, you know, you're, you're trying to control, right? But if you're Christian, we can, we can be glad for what we've received. I don't know how many times I've had this you know, prayer time with God. I'm like, I'm so worried. I'm so worried about the future. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and he's like, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm provided for. He's like, well, why don't you just enjoy what I gave you today? And stop worrying about this. Like, I got it. And, you know, 30 years later, I'm still having those moments. I'm like, what about, what about, what about? He's like, how you doing today? <sighs> I'm provided for. You're caring for me. <sighs> I'm going to have a glad heart instead of a worried, anxious heart. It's a totally new way, a new frame and a new way of relating to material wealth. So, as we think about the, the house uh, analogy, right, and you think about what, what are some of the beliefs that you have down in here? Have you entrusted yourself to God in faith in Christ for the first time? Have you done that? Is that that first internal belief, core belief, has that happened? Maybe that, that, that's the uh, belief you need to adopt this morning. Or have you done that and there's other beliefs that aren't consistent with that core belief that there's a good God and he is uh, in ultimate control and he's good. And what, what, what happens is in like a cognitive behavioral therapy thing, it's just like I just try to think these things. I'm trying to attach them to my emotions and over time my emotions are going to change and it's not wrong. Like, like there's some real wisdom there. But as a Christian... Here's what's happening to you. The Holy Spirit is taking those truths and he is driving them down into your basement. And it's not a one-to-one kind of correlation. It's like, well, if I do this, then the Holy Spirit will do this and then my beliefs will be all... No, it's, it's practicing those spiritual practices. Praying, reading scripture, being in community. Even what you're doing right now as you're hearing a sermon preached, as we're about to take the bread and the cup, all of this the Holy Spirit is using over time in an indirect way. It's, again, it's not like this one-to-one, I do this, I get this. But in an indirect way, we are spiritually formed and that basement gets cleaned up. Before we left uh, Massachusetts, Melanie cleaned out our basement and it took a year. Now, she was painstaking in doing it. Like, she sold a bunch on Facebook Marketplace. She, we threw a bunch away. We gave a bunch away to Salvation Army. Like, but it was just like this year-long process of recognizing and replacing. And as the, as a, for, a, for a Christian, it's going to be lifelong. It's going to be lifelong. And your basement's going to not be as stinky as it was last week or the you know, last month. It's going to get better down in there. Better things are going to permeate as it moves up into your thoughts and your feelings and your actions and your, and your words. But this is going to be an ongoing process of transformation. Man, what, a, what an invitation by Jesus to, when he says, don't be anxious. He seems to think, and I would, I'll go with him since he's the divine son of God, that we can be free from fear. We can be free from anxiety because of our new identity and these beliefs 
in what true reality is in, in faith in the unseen. We're reminded of these realities when we come to this table. Um, this, is, this is one of the, the things about the Christian gospel that is so unique uh, is that the, the unseen God became seen. He broke in from the transcendent frame into the imminent. This is partly what Jesus is saying. When he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's, he's letting us know. There's a lot of things he's letting us know when he says that. But one thing is, he's like, I'm flesh and blood. Like the divine son of God, eternal, he broke in. And he broke in as a human. And why did he do that? Just to be an example? Well, that's partly it. So we can see him as an example and kind of see what being fully human looks like. And, um, but more than that, he did it to die in our place. And he takes the cup and he blesses it and he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And he let them know. He became a flesh and blood human so that he could die in our place to forgive us of our sins, even the sins of being a, a scared, anxious, greedy hoarder. <laughs> this is partly what he's dying on the cross for, is to free us from being anxious, greedy, Hoarders who are just trying to survive to being those who have glad and generous hearts. That's good news. That's good news. And so as we take this bread and this cup, we're being reminded of what Christ has done for us and what he's freed us from and freed us to in order to bring glory to him and to, to, to live well in his kingdom uh, as we seek it first. So I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll take communion. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage. I needed this passage. I don't know if anyone else needed it, but I needed it. I needed to think through this passage and think through these truths and drive these truths even deeper down into my basement. Um, but God, I, I can't do that without the assistance of your Holy Spirit. So I pray that, and I trust that you've been doing this even in this time of preaching that you're driving these, these beliefs down into the basement of our lives, to our hearts. Help us, God, to believe, to believe at the level of our hearts and that that would free us, God, from anxious thoughts, from, from, from worry, God, from actions that are not consistent with your scripture, with your kingdom reign, um, for, for all that comes out of this sort of anxious worry about how we're going to make it in the next week, month, however long. And so God, free us from that through the good news of your gospel and uh, remind us of this great and glorious thing that you've done in your providence to provide for us, for our ultimate need. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.